Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, I will pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. We are here to hear your voice, to know you more. And I pray, God, that you would transform us by the reality of your word. Uh, I, I pray as even we, we kind of hit a passage that, that can have a more... Um, applicational feel, God, that, that it wouldn't be divorced from the gospel, that we'd see you for who you are, and we'd see our lives in response to your glory and to your love and to your mercy and by the power of your Holy Spirit. As we look today about what it is to be mature, God, I, I pray that we wouldn't look to the world and we wouldn't look to uh, whatever else is going on, but that we'd look to your word and to the reality of you, Jesus, and you just help us to know you and love you and help other people to follow you. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. amen. All right, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Uh, today we're looking about what it, what it means for us to grow up into the gospel. Um, the author of Hebrews is after maturity and the people he is writing to. Uh, and what's important for us is what it is to, what it is to grow up. And he's going to straight up use language like, you guys are being babies, uh, and you need to grow up and be grown-ups. Uh, even that kind of language we see here, uh, we need to be careful that we don't just look to what the world thinks of uh, as grown up. And, and unfortunately, we don't just look to necessarily what the, the church at large uh, thinks, uh, what it means to be a grown up, but that we look at the Bible. Because when we look at the world, the world kind of has a survival of the fittest, top of the dog pile routine where you're a grown up if you, uh, if you have power, if, if you have control, if you have money. Uh, that is what it is to grow up and to be a grown up. Uh, likewise, in the church, and we even look around, uh, it can be like, oh man, independent, wealthy, do what you want to do, selfish, whatever it might be. And, and it's almost as if the church has looked to the world and seen the world standard of what grown-up is. Or even uh, at, at this time and place in life, the sort of vacuum, the Peter Panism of uh, you know being a 35-year-old dude playing lots of video games and you're free in Christ to be a 35-year-old dude who plays video games. Uh, but when that is your identity, looking at that saying, uh, maybe work in video games at 35 isn't the point of life, right? Uh, but we've almost looked at that as the church, and we've kind of uh, picked up on the opposite. And if we're not careful, what we pick up on is maturity, uh, is not Peter, Pan, Peter Panism, but is uh, grow up, buy a house, get married, have kids, and that is mature. And what's the problem with that picture that sometimes the church has? This is what a mature person is. Uh, the problem is, is that you can do all those things without Jesus. You can grow up, you can get a house, you can have kids, and not do any of that with Jesus, and sometimes what we look to uh, with maturity doesn't have Jesus involved in it. It can be completely divorced from the gospel uh, in every way, shape, or form. Uh, in fact, today we're going to look and see what it means for us to have maturity in the gospel, in maturity in Christ, what it means for us to be mature Christians. And I think when we see that, all of a sudden it's not about whether or not you're good at uh, venture capitalism or whether you're good at buying houses or whatever that is. It, it's that you know Jesus and that because you know Jesus, you know right from wrong and live in it. Uh, but I think even the Bible will turn that on its ear a little bit. Uh, and it's really important as we approach this text, this is one of the more applicational pieces where he's actually telling the Hebrews what to do, the people who are receiving this letter. But what's he been doing for five chapters? 
Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the better Moses. And so for five chapters, he's been beating the Jesus drum. And so when we come to this idea even of maturity, it's not just how you're a grown-up and can tie your own shoes. It's how uh, you're mature in the reality of who Jesus is. So let's go ahead and dig in uh, in verse 11. About this, we have much... I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll... We'll take it from the top. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying in a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So right on the top, verse 11, about this we have much to say. What does he have much to say about? The same thing he's been talking about for five chapters, and that's Jesus. We have a lot to say about Jesus. Uh, this means, and I think this is really important, sometimes we can get this perception in, uh, in the church that, like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is the ABCs of Christianity. And we miss that it's the A to Zs of Christianity. Uh, and, and the thing that he's mining is not, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and now let's talk about some esoteric, weird, off-topic, out-in-the-woods idea that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Rather, for five chapters, he keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. He keeps going deeper and deeper into the reality that God became a man and dwelt among us. He goes deeper and deeper into the reality that Jesus lived to glorify God, to point to the beauty and the wonder of God the Father. Uh, he goes deeper and deeper into the reality that if you are a Christian today, you are forgiven from all of your sins and you are washed clean and you sit here hearing the word of God right, regardless of what happened last night. And he's going deeper and deeper and deeper into that. So the thing that he's got to talk about is like not some, let, let's talk about, uh, you know, some apocryphal book, the Gospel of Enoch or whatever. He wants to go deeper and deeper and deeper down into talking about Jesus and the implications, the radical implications of the Gospel of Jesus who came and dwelt among us and saved us from ourselves and gave us life. And that's where maturity lives. It's not something else. It's not out in... Uh, you know, how you can have a Christianese kind of uh, investing company. Uh, it, it's not in whether or not you can move up the ladder of being a community group leader and then a, and then a community group coach and then you're a deacon and then you're an elder. That's not maturity, right? Maturity is found here in Jesus and in his gospel. Yeah, if you're mature, you may do some of those things, but it's here. And about this we have much to say, and he does, because we're not even halfway into the book, and it's going to get wild in the next you know, few chapters, I promise. Uh, and it is hard to explain. The thing that's become hard to explain is Jesus, the gospel. It's becoming hard to explain. It's become hard to explain to you since you have become dull of hearing. Uh, literally, this is lazy. You become lazy in hearing about Jesus. Now, the thing is, is that these aren't lazy people in a spiritual sense, right? They're, they actually have an overactive spiritual imagination, and that's kind of their problem. Um, they've been running down, yeah, Jesus is nice, but the temple 
At the temple, there's high priests, and he wears this cool outfit, and there's sacrifices, and there's incense, and there's candles, and there's this big building, and it's made out of rock, and they say cool stuff, and they've, they've become enamored with the life. These are, these are people who had been, who, who are Jewish, who have seen that Jesus is the Messiah, as promised in the Old Testament, but the stuff of the gospel, the stuff of Jesus loves me, this I know, uh, has become boring for them, and they've become lazy in digging into that reality. And they're saying, you know, that animal sacrifice thing, that's cool. We know we're getting something done. Uh, the guy with the, with the square gold dilly with the rocks on it, that's cool. We're getting something done. So it's not that, they've, that they're not doing uh, stuff. It's that they're missing Jesus in the stuff they do. Uh, to, 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 to bring this forward for us, I think this is the, the case you get with Martha and Mary uh, in Luke chapter 10. Martha's running around doing all the serving. Jesus is at her house. She's doing all this serving. And, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet hearing the gospel truth of Jesus. And Martha gets ticked off at, uh, at Mary because she's just sitting there. And she says, Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help me. Help me. And he says to her, Martha, you've become distracted with much serving. The word there is an interesting word. It's the word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. You could translate it in a fair way. Martha, you've become distracted with much ministry. She has chosen the good portion. She sat at my feet as a disciple, and she's hearing the good news of the gospel. So you can even get distracted doing a bunch of Christian-ish type of things and do none of it with Jesus Christ himself. And that's really scary. Hebrews is a scary book. It's a scary book. Because you're like, but, yeah, I'll keep going. Because you become lazy in hearing. So in all their busyness, I'm not saying don't serve, don't love people, don't, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But we do it rooted in the reality of Jesus, of his gospel, that we're doing it in the freedom of the gospel. Okay. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles or revelations of God. By this time, you ought to be making disciples. But we got to go back to 101. Now, 101, again, it's not 101 that we leave behind. It's 101 that we carry on through. Because his answer to their immaturity and the fact that they can't be do disciples has been what? What's his answer been? Uh, it's not to like pull out the, the sermon nine iron and guilt them and beat them up over the head and tell them, you should really be doing this and you should really be trying harder. His answer for five chapters has been like, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. Because he understands that if you and me and these folks see who Jesus is, then we will be motivated to love him, to follow him, to be passionate for him, and to serve others. It's that in seeing Jesus that we want to love God and love other people. And so his answer has not been, you guys should really do this because you're Christians and this is what you're supposed to do. It's been Jesus, 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 Jesus. But why does he want them to be teachers even? You should be teachers by now. Why would he even bring that out? Because the fact of the matter is, is your spiritual life doesn't terminate on you. Your Christianity, your discipleship, your life doesn't terminate on you. If you're a Christian, the point of your life is Jesus First and foremost, to love him and to love other people. And the most loving thing you can do in the lives of other people is do whatever you can to help them see Jesus for who he is. 
There's nothing more loving you can do in someone's life than apply the reality of the gospel into the intricate parts of the day-to-day. There's literally nothing more loving you can do than help people see Jesus. That's it. You can do a lot of other things. You can do a lot of other service, but that's, that's the one, is helping other people see Jesus. And so I think what he has in mind is that they're actually having a life of discipleship. And we have to be careful with that word because that word can become kind of like this weird esoteric word to us, discipleship. Um, here's, here's my experience as a new Christian. And even a Christian, I've been a Christian for a couple of years. And I remember me reading Matthew 28. And Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know what happened when I looked at it? I said, what the heck is a disciple? Jesus, what the heck are you even talking about? And it seems that Jesus has in view something that he's not hiding, right? Um, You will rarely, if ever, find anything other than confusing maybe for us where we sit sort of in history. Jesus doesn't ever say, hey, do this, but I'm not going to tell you how to do it. He loves you. I I hope you know that in your Christian walk, he loves you and he's not hiding anything that he wants you to do from, you know, in, in plain He might reveal things in your life. He might lead you and guide you. You might be in a spot right now in life when you're like, why am I here, Jesus? How did I get here? This is not where I thought I would be in my life today. This is not what I thought it would be like. And three years from now, you'll be like, oh, that's what you were doing. You're good. But he's not hiding the fact that he wants you to follow him in it. Is that clear? That not everything is plain and simple all the time, and and we can't reduce uh, hardship in life or whatever's happening in life. Uh, But the fact of the matter is he's working for you, not against you, and he's not hiding what he wants you to do today. And so with that confidence, I look at this idea of disciple. I want you to make disciples. Who is he talking to? He's talking to you and me. He's not just talking about me. Like It's not just, oh, the guy who's standing up front on the, you know, we don't have a stage, the thing, the pretend stage, Right? The floor standing up. I'm the guy standing up, so I'm the disciple maker, but so are you. You ought to be teachers, right? He's the teacher, right? He's, the, he's writing the Bible. Yeah, you ought to be teachers by now because your, your life doesn't terminate on you. But here's the problem, and this is what's scary for me as I realize this, and this might be where you're at. Maybe not, and if not, praise the Lord. But I've realized as I've talked to people and I've said, hey, so um, if you were to sit down right now with someone who just met Jesus, or maybe you're sitting down with your friend who's like, I don't know. I, I want to learn about this Jesus guy. I don't know. You, you seem to be happy or something. What do I do? And you were to sit down with someone. If I were to sit you down with, a, with someone who's interested in Jesus or someone who just became a Christian, I said, go ahead and do the Great Commission. What do you do? Well, is it somebody else's job to do the Great Commission? Why is it my job to do the, I mean, something you need to know. There are literally people that the loving, wonderful, amazing God of the universe has put in your life that are not in my life, and he's uniquely positioned you there to share the truth of Jesus and the truth of life with them. And there are people you are uniquely positioned to love and share and help to see Jesus that I can't. And likewise, you look around the room, there's a bunch of us who have a bunch of people that everybody else can't get to. I mean, it's weird for me as a, as a, as a, as a preacher, right? Because before I was a preacher, I, I took door, I took uh, IDs at the bar at a Mexican restaurant, right? Like, that was my job. And they thought it was funny that I had tattoos and was studying theology. And so I'd be sitting with Summa Theologica on my lap, taking IDs, and all these people would be like, what's that? 
oh, it's Thomas Aquinas, I'm reading it for a class, and I would get in these like long conversations with people about Jesus, just taking IDs, and I was in this unique place in the world where I could just do that, and my bosses thought it was charming somehow by God's grace and favor. <laughs> I'm not really sure why they thought I should be doing that on the, like I was on the clock, taking IDs, talking about the gospel. That was cool. That's not where I'm at, it's over, and I miss it, but I know that this is where God's got me now. But, but God might have you in one of those by his sovereign. And he's got me one too. It's pretty awesome when I have my neighbors and the second question, maybe first question they ask me is, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. Or I'm a pre- I, usually say, I like to say preacher because then we can kind of get to the gospel quicker, right? Um, that's, that's, I'm just telling you the truth. I want, I want to get there with them. I want to love them. I want to serve them. And I want them to know that I'm their neighbor and, and that they can ask me any question about Jesus they want and they don't have one that's going to scare me. And it's cool, you know, it takes time, but it's, it's cool. But, but regardless, you are in a unique position in life uh, to deal with that. But the problem is a lot of us don't even know how to make a disciple because we're not even sure what a disciple is for starters, and then we're not really sure what to do about it, okay? And I think there's some reasons for that. One, it's kind of a weird word, disciple, discipleship. It just means a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, the Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Discipleship is helping other people do that thing, uh, as a church, one of the ways that we define even like being part of this church is to be a member of Anchor Church, is to take responsibility for the people that is Anchor Church and for that people to take responsibility for you, right? We did a Bible study, and for some reason, uh, some blessed reason, a bunch of people got up at 6 in the morning to study First John uh, this week. Now, what's important there is that the per- people leading that, uh, it's not the people leading that job to make disciples, it's that we're making disciples together, Right? That, that it's not, that, that, that everything we do, it's not just I'm going to sit there and talk and everyone says, yes, that's very fascinating. I learned stuff. I saw Jesus clear from what other people said, the observations they took out of the scriptures. This is what it is to be a community of faith in Christ. This is what it is to be his people, is to help each other see Jesus. But we kind of miss that that's even what we're supposed to do. I think there's a couple big reasons for that, and that's uh, in, our, in America we have a couple of things we do that's other than people helping people see Jesus. Uh, one of those things is we kind of just do discipleship by osmosis, where most of our maturing comes. Um, I'm, a, I'm obviously a proponent of preaching. I think preaching is important. I think it is good. Uh, it is one of my favorite things to do in life. Um, I love listening to preaching. When, when I first felt the call into being a preacher, I probably listened to hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons. I would get my hands on sermons and I would listen, listen, listen. I tried listening across the theological spectrum, across tradition, and just listen and listen and listen. And guess what? I learned a lot. And my hope is you leave here different than when you came in, but not because I told you how to balance your checkbook, but because you saw Jesus more clearly. That's, that's the hope of preaching. That's the job of the preacher. Um, but the problem is, is that this isn't the only way that you mature and grow in the gospel. And, and sometimes we kind of reduce it to this. I come on Sunday, I come, I listen, the guy preaches, I take some notes, which if you want to take notes, I'm not picking on you or anything. I always feel bad when I say something like that, people are like, I'm taking notes, I'm sorry. I'm like, don't be sorry. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, now everybody who's taking notes feels really self-aware. Sorry. <laughs> this is not the point. Uh, take notes. I take notes. When I, I really like taking notes when I'm, I'm listening to preaching. I like hearing what, I like write down what the Holy Spirit says because sometimes I forget. Okay. Um, at the same time, if, if you don't have these life-on-life relationships with other Christians where, where you have a thing where it's not just your Christian buddy that you talk about football with, but your Christian buddy where you talk about Jesus. Well, it would be awkward to talk about Jesus with him. He's kind of my football buddy. Yeah, football, fine, great, cool, awesome. There's a 12 on the building. Yay! <laughs> 10,000 years from now, 
you're not going to remember who won that game. 10,000 years from now, you get to be with Jesus. You can talk about football and Jesus. Like, it's not, you don't have to be weird about it. You can talk about football and Jesus. It's all right. But having these real dynamic spiritual relationships with other people where you ought to be, because you ought to be teachers. And it doesn't necessarily mean you ought to be standing here doing this, right? But it means you ought to be helping other people see Jesus because God is even revealing unique things to you as you study the word, as you study the scripture that is meant, maybe it's something that you're like, oh man, I never saw before uh, uh, that, that Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is running around like a chicken with her head cut off. And, and maybe when you, share that, when you share that with somebody else, it hits their heart, right? Because God wants to do something with it. So it can't just be discipleship by osmosis, by that I mean the coming or the, the, down, the downloading of podcasts or the coming on Sunday. Because what happens is then when you have a friend who meets Jesus, what do you do when it's time for them, when they're like, I want to grow in the gospel? What are you left to do? You say, well, you can come with me on Sunday, which is awesome and good. I just can't stop there. Or you say, oh, you know, I got this Matt Chandler download. You should really listen to his sermons, which is awesome and good. I want to be careful here. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it's good. But I'm saying if that's the only thing you know how to do in terms of making disciples, uh, you're not actually making disciples. You're just advertising for podcasts. And you're missing a lot of joy. Because there's nothing that brings more joy than helping other people see Jesus. There's nothing more joy than when you see hardness melt on someone's heart or someone liberated for something they're just stuck in because they see Jesus. And you get to be part of that. It's the Holy Spirit's work, but you're the church. Look in the book of Acts. It comes up over and over again. The church, the word, and the spirit. The church, the word, and the spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit uses you as a messenger of grace through the word of God to move people's hearts to see Jesus. You ought to be teachers. The other thing we do, uh, the other thing we do, which is really dangerous and scary, and we have to be very careful of, um, if it's not osmosis, it's discipleship by program. And by that I mean you always have a curriculum, or you always have a thing, or you always have a structure, or you always have a plan that, that's supposed to be the plan that makes disciples. It's this kind of community group. We have this special, magic, super-duper, awesome community group that's going to make disciples. And if we can just get everybody in the super-duper, awesome, magic, super-powerful community group, we will make disciples. Honestly, when I, sometimes you have to ask the second question. I never know anyone that's like, I came to spiritual maturity because I went to seminary. And you ask another question. I came to spiritual maturity because I took this class. You keep going and you keep going. And it turns out that somebody, a person in the class, just used the class as the rails for making disciples. It was just the track for making disciples. But it was not the seminary. The seminary is just a building and some bricks and some books. It's the people who make disciples. But we kind of have this thing where we think that it's got to be a curriculum. Because you're like, I can't do that. i got to have a book or something. Maybe we can read a book together. And maybe do it. That's fine. Great. As long as it's the tracks for life on life pointing to each, the reality of Jesus together in the word. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? Because these things are mediators between you and the disciples you're making because programs don't make disciples and osmosis doesn't make disciples. People make disciples. And that's why they ought to be teachers and that's why you ought to be teachers. We see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul has this sense that they're doing life on life. Because guess what? If you're downloading Tim Keller podcasts, which I would recommend on your telephone because we live in the future and you have a button you push and all of a sudden Tim Keller's talking at you, 
He's a super genius and he's awesome. But you and I probably aren't going to have dinner at Tim Keller's house. You and I aren't going to see how he interacts with his wife. You, aren't, you and I aren't going to see how he prays for dinner, right? That's, that's life on life. There's a life on life dynamic when people are in each other's lives. And honestly, the, the, the mediator that is program or curriculum or, or we have the awesome kind of small group that just makes magic happen, we, we vested in that thing and then all of a sudden you don't know how to just have a conversation over a cup of coffee or tea. And when someone says, hey, here's how, how my life is falling apart, you feel like, oh, I got to go get a professional because this is a mess. Guess what? All of, us lie, all of our lives are a mess. And there are times and places where our lives just seem to fall apart. And the last thing I need is a curriculum. I need someone to tell me the truth about who Jesus is and help apply that reality of the gospel to my life. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Easy to remember that address. Timothy, take what I gave to you, give it to somebody else who's going to give it to somebody else. There's four generations of life-on-life discipleship, teaching people. Uh, Titus chapter 2, for some reason, that verse, that reference has been stolen for ladies' teas everywhere. And have everyone's like, what are you talking about? And then everybody else who's like in a Southern Baptist church sometime in their life is like, for real. <laughs> Titus 2 is our, our verses that tell us that older men ought to help younger men and older ladies ought to help younger ladies. It's not just about going to tea together. And if it happens at tea, hey, if those are the rails for discipleship, praise the Lord. Uh, if people want to organize tea, power to the people. I don't have a problem. I'm not against tea. Tea is nice, right? I'm not against doilies or whatever. Like, great. <laughs> But the point there is that, guess what? I'm not a professional, I'm a preacher. Preachers aren't professionals. And you have something going on in your life, perhaps, that as a dude, I can't help you with if you're a lady, right? Or maybe uh, an older guy can help a younger guy with that I can't, because guess what? I'm not an older guy. I'm just an old guy. I'm not an old, old guy, right? I feel that way. Four children waking me up every 15 minutes all night. Maybe that's a bit exaggerated. Right, but I don't, I don't know what it is to send a Christian kid to college. You might. I don't, know, I don't know how it's to be the mom of a college-age Christian kid. I don't know. Find someone. There are people actually in our church who know and have that experience. And yeah, I can help you. I can walk with you. I can look at it. I can pray about it. I can help you. But, but I'm not the one guy to help everybody follow Jesus, by the way. And it's not the three guys, the three elders. It's the church together here to help each other. It's life on life, and there's no program for that. All the stuff we do is just tracks to make that happen. This is what he wants from them. He wants them to help other people follow Jesus. You ought to be teachers by now. That's what it is to grow up in the gospel. Um, He does get a little sassy here. Uh, You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for the grown-up. Now, here's here's our big problem. As we try and figure out who should be helping people follow Jesus, first of all, if you've been a Christian 10 minutes, you're in the team of helping people follow Jesus. I don't know if you know that. 
Sometimes it's sitting with the people who have just met Jesus and their first read through like Mark's gospel. Like, did you ever see that? Nope. No. But you got the word and you got the spirit and you just made a disciple. You're just making a disciple of me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but, but we get into this idea of what maturity means. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Distinguishing good from evil. So, um, our problem is that we tend to see with human eyes. We don't tend to see with God's eyes. The classic example of this, of course, is David, King David. His dad brings out seven, I think seven big brothers, guys that shoot bows and are cool and are big. The prophet keeps looking at him like, you got somebody else? Because God didn't say that was the guy. We've got David out with the sheep. If you'd like to see him, if you want him to be the king, I can go get him. Go get some, brings him. He's like, that's the guy. That guy? That guy. Um, when we think of maturity, when we think Christian maturity, we get it wrong for the most part. Church at large. I don't, I'm not saying this necessarily of us as a, as a community, but we need to be aware of this because we are Christians who live in America in 2014, which means we live in a particular environment. We need to be aware of the Christian environment in which we live. Um, we really do redu- reduce maturity to life stage accomplishment, right? House, spouse, kids, that's maturity. Uh, they don't live at mom's house, which I think is really interesting because Jesus has this idea, right, like that he says that you leave your mother and father and cleave to your, I think it's spouse, husband or wife, whatever he says there, and, and it's interesting that we would never look at a 35-year-old living at their parents' house if we took culture stuff and say, that guy has got it together. Because you know what that guy does? That guy doesn't care that people see him living at his mom's house because he knows his identity is in Jesus Christ. He knows he's socking money away or he's helping somebody adopt a kid or he's sending his money to Africa or he's saving up and helping somebody or doing something because he knows he's a single guy and it doesn't matter that he lives at mom's house. But we look at him and be like, oh man, 35, a mom's house. That guy must not be mature. Says who? It's not what Jesus seems to think, right? We don't have the right eyes to see. And so what we end up doing uh, in the church, we end up being like, okay, we need some elders. Who is, a, who is an astounding business leader? Jimmy John has the best used car lot in town. He should be an elder. And no one asks, does he have a love of money? Because he seems like he's got a love of money. The reason why he's got the best used car dealership in town is he has a love of money. We just look on the outside and look at worldly success. We don't look and see what's actually going on. The place we start with the elders in the church, if someone's feeling called to eldership, you know where we start, the verse we go to? Where would you go to? I don't know, right? Mark 10. Mark 10 in the 40s, Jesus says something which is the sign of maturity for leaders. Jesus says, the world does power, the world does leadership this way. It is not to be so among you. We are not looking for people who are good at worldly leadership. We are looking for people who are good at godly leadership. That is maturity. Humility is maturity. Because what does Jesus say? The Son of Man came not to serve but to be served and give his life as a ransom for many. So when we're looking for elders in the church, we're looking for people who are laying their lives down. 
not who have the big used car lot. And if you have a used car lot, praise the Lord, that's fine, just do it like a Christian, right? Um, The other thing we do is we often supplant maturity with a corporate ladder scale. Um, So we are not very good at taking a guy and saying that guy is the best guy at taking guys out for coffee and making people feel welcome when they come to church, when they come into the community. We look at that guy and say, man, every time that guy's at a Bible study, he takes every new person out for coffee and gets to know them. They feel loved, they feel appreciated, and they feel like they have a voice in the, in the study. Let's make him a Bible study leader. Guess what? He doesn't want to be a Bible study leader. He wants to be the taking guys out for coffee and stacking chairs guy. That's what he wants to do with his life. He wants to stack chairs and take people out for coffee, and he would like to do that in the church for the next 30 years. But we say, you know what? You're really effective at making people feel welcome. You've got to be a Bible study leader. And so then we say, he's, he's still doing it. He doesn't want to do the Bible study because he's obligated and he does all the other stuff. So, well, you know, maturity would look like him. We need a Bible study. I don't know what you would call the leader of Bible studies, but we'll call him the Bible study czar because that's a fun word to say. <laughs> we need a Bible study czar, and Jimmy John's going to be the Bible study czar, and he's moving up the ladder. He's a Bible study czar, therefore he must be more mature than just the guy stacking chairs and taking people out for coffee. Oh, he's a pretty good Bible study czar. He hates it. He doesn't want anything to do with it. So we make him a deacon, or we make him an elder, right? Homie doesn't want to be an elder. <laughs> he wants to stack chairs and take people out for coffee. But we have trouble having the idea that Billy Bob or Jimmy John could be just as mature as one of the elders taking people out for coffee and getting to know people and stacking chairs. It kind of melts our face. We're not, really, we're not comfortable there. We're not comfortable with a guy that we can't stick a label on who's moved up the ladder, could be just as mature and able to make disciples as the guy who's just as happy taking people out for coffee, using his spiritual gifts to take people out for coffee and make them feel welcomed and, 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 and like they have a voice in the Bible, whatever that thing is. Because what did Jesus, what does the Bible say maturity is? Did you catch it? Did you hear anything about moving up the scale? Did you hear anything about um, uh, buying a house and then buying another house and renting out your old house and renting this other house and, and working some, some Ponzi scheme on your house rentals? Didn't say any of those things. What did he say maturity is? Did you catch it? Because that's honestly, when I, when I interact with people, that's mature. And and, and friends, sometimes maybe you feel like you're bad at real estate. You feel like, maybe I'm not mature then. Maybe you're not good at leading a Bible study. Maybe you're, like, bad at organizing stuff. Maybe excel sounds like something you don't excel at or is horrible and nasty, and, and you don't want to use a computer. Right? And you can get the sense that, that this other stuff is what maturity is, and so I have to move up the scale to be mature or, or, or whatever it might be. But hear what he said. The solid food is for the mature. For those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's maturity. Maturity comes from being men and women who know God's word. And from knowing his word, do life and can, 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 can tell what's following Jesus and what's not following Jesus. Where Jesus is going, where Jesus isn't going. What is sin, what is not sin. That's maturity. That's maturity, friends. You want to be mature, you get in the word. You want to be mature, you get with other Christians who are going to point you to Jesus. You want to be mature, you use the powers that the Holy Spirit is giving you to discern good from bad, right from wrong. 
And what's amazing is I find, uh, even this guy, right, he's pointing them back to Jesus, getting back in the word, back in the word. When people are in the word, I don't really have debates with them about right and wrong, good and evil. Uh, People want to debate right and wrong, good and evil. Is this permissible? Is this not permissible? I don't know. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about it? Let's see what God's word says. And not some like abstraction. I mean chapter, verse. Don't do this because God loves you and he knows that will kill you. And I even found as a new Christian, when I would sit under preaching, uh, they'd get to a part that I hadn't gotten to yet. Ever have this happen when you're a new Christian? They get to a part, they're, they're ahead of you. <laughs> they're in 1 John and you're back in Matthew. Or maybe you started in Genesis. And if you're a brand new Christian or you've never read the Bible, start with Matthew. And then go back to Genesis and work your way through. Just a tip. Because you get stuck in Leviticus and you're like, I'm not really sure where we are right now. <laughs> but if you read the New Testament, it'll help. And, and by the way, just as, not as like a plug, but if you, want some, if you need somebody to, a person to open the Bible with you and help you understand it, we have people who like to do that. Just an aside. People, right? So anyways, where was I? Here we are. So we're plugging along. I would hear them say something like, such and such, X, Y, and Z is not a thing for Christians to do. And I'd be like, really? You don't say. I'd go ahead and speed up. Yep, yep, okay. I got some phone calls to make. You're right, it's right there. Because um, the word, it's the word of truth. Maturity comes from Eating this, eating it up. I shouldn't have done that. I don't know why I did that, but there it is. I'm going to keep going. Okay. Therefore, therefore, uh, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And what he means here is not, again, this is not the jumping forward and leaving Jesus behind and doing something else. He's like, okay. We did the Jesus loves me, this I know, let's keep going. His answer to their maturing is not to like pull back, but to press in. See that? It's to press into Jesus. It's to press into Jesus. So here we go. Uh, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And then he lists some things that are the the basics that every Christian should be walking in. Um, What's interesting here is they're getting lost in sort of the Jewish stuff. And if you leave the Christ part out... uh, Commentators have observed that all the stuff he's listing here in its basic form can actually be found in Judaism, in its non-pre-Messianic you know, form. These are things that any Hebrew reading the Old Testament would affirm. And he's saying, okay, these things are good, let's move on. But we need to see how these things in particular have their uh, identity and idea rooted in the gospel. Because if we don't do that, then we just kind of wander out into application and don't hook it into Jesus. And if we miss that, then what's the point, right? So here we go. Uh, and I will go very quick. Uh, not laying in the foundation of repentance from dead works. Turning from evil and turning to Jesus. And, and really, there, there are, are three very key things that, that we can get off on repentance that are very bad and dangerous. When we get away from this basic foundation stuff, we're building a house and this is the foundation. Um, one, we can kind of get into what I call sin snipering, or you spend your life looking for other people's sin, and you spend your life looking for their sin behind the sin. Someone says, hey, you know what, I, I, I bought the deep fried turkey thing. Uh, I shouldn't have. It was on credit. It was out of budget. I don't think it was a good use of God's money. Um, I just want to talk about it and, and just make it right. And then you have to like press in. And be like, well, why did you buy the turkey thing? 
and you press in some more. Oh, you have a love, and you try and get in there and be the Holy Spirit for them. Let the Holy Spirit, Spirit be the Holy Spirit for them. Um, we can't muscle repentance out of people by getting back down and in there. And sometimes you see preachers do that because guess what? I get to preach in kind of an, an abstraction, right? If today you're like, how did you know I bought a deep turkey fryer thing? And you're right. I do have a love of comfort. I bought that because I wanted to be comfortable. And I thought the turkey fryer would make me comfortable. And that was a bad use of, of Jesus' funds. How did you know? I didn't. If you're that guy, that's you. The guy or gal, like, that's, that's the spirit at work, right? So as a preacher, I can operate out in abstractions and demonstrate so that you can apply this to your own war against your own sin, right? And you can do this, like, with a spouse or someone you're really tight with. When you're like, so it seems like... Uh, Seems like the fish in your fishing story keep getting bigger. What's, what's going on there, chief? You like everyone think you're a good fisherman because, you know, I know your, your dad thought you were a horrible fisherman and you want them all, it's a dad issue. Th- you know what I mean? Like you might have someone, I, again, I'm operating in abstraction here. Your spouse is someone you can do that with. Um, somebody at community group, don't do that. Don't do that. And, and if for some reason the spirit gives you specific leaning, when you're all sitting around chatting, maybe might not be the time to bring it up. Okay? Maybe having a one-on-one conversation. Not everybody needs to know how good you are at rooting out other people's sin. Okay? Just saying that. That's how I want our community groups to go. You're free in Christ, but... I don't know. Are you tracking with me on this one? Um, the other thing we, can be, we need to be careful of is the, there's two sides on repentance. There's two sides of the same coin, and one's being a Pharisee and one's being a false prophet. Uh, the Pharisee takes something that's plain and simple in the scriptures and adds a bunch of stuff to it. Or maybe takes something that's less clear and tries to add concrete, this is sin, you did this stuff to it that's not clear. Pharisees did this. Uh, people weren't to work on the Sabbath. Pharisees though, then said part of working is clear in the Old Testament, is not dragging, uh, is, not, um, is not doing farm work on the Sabbath. All their floors were made out of dirt, which meant if you just drag your chair along the floor, it tills the soil. So Pharisees said, don't move a chair by dragging it on the Sabbath because that's tilling the soil. Doesn't say that in Leviticus. It just says, don't hook up your oxen and go out and do agrarian things. Right? But they add to it. Oh, oh, you're a Christian, you're not supposed to do this. And here's what I think that looks like and I'm going to come after you. And they add add to the things that God's given us because he loves us and wants us to know how to be wise in the world and they add rules and regulations to it and frankly, life is a lot harder than that. Uh, Life is not just about watching rated R movies or not watching rated R movies if it only were that simple because you watch, I don't know, The Lion King, right? What's going on in The Lion? I don't know, it's crazy. I'm not even making the Disney throw darts thing right now. That's not what I'm after. But, but what I mean is, it's just not that simple. The question is, is this movie going to draw me closer to or further from Jesus? That's the question. And that, frankly, is a harder question to ask. Is this the right or wrong behavior? Way harder question to answer. You need the word and you need the spirit to answer that question. Uh, the flip side of that is false prophetism. Ism? Jeremiah. There's all these false prophets in the book of Jeremiah. And what do the guys that are the false prophets in Jeremiah do? When people are diso- explicitly disobeying the word of God, they run around saying, no, 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 don't, don't worry about that. It's cool. Don't worry about that one. No, no, no. I, I know it says that in the Bible, but it doesn't really mean it. Right? So both sides of that coin are different kinds of gymnastics. One where you try and contort and control law out of the gospel, and the other is where you try and contort and control and 
make things that the Bible explicitly says are not for God's people permissible. So we stay both away from both of those. And this is in the basics of repentance. Jesus loves you and he doesn't want you to die. Trust him. Faith in God. Because we believe God. And repentance isn't just stopping doing wrong stuff. It's turning to God. It's turning to Jesus. The washings. This is just liturgy. He's talking about basic liturgy here in, uh, in uh, 3. Foundation, repentance from dead works, and faith towards God, and instructions about washing. <clears throat> Um, I don't think he's just talking about baptism here uh, because of the word that you translate baptism, uh, but it's plural, washings. And I, and I don't think what we mean here is we're having a conversation about high church or low church or uh, this thing or that thing or the other thing. I think the thing is the reality of the reason why God's people get together is why? Jesus. Okay? Uh, he's getting down to the point of God's people coming together. The rituals of the church, communion, baptism, those things are centered in Jesus and the gospel. We baptize people because we are dead and now are alive. We take communion to remember Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for our sins. And it's rooted in the gospel. And he doesn't want to have lengthy uh, conversations. It's not that we can't have those lengthy theological conversations, right? He's just saying these are the basics that we agree on. Uh, the laying on of hands this is the appointing of leaders. There's a lot we could say about that. About this, we have much to say. Um, not that you've grown lazy in hearing. Um, but I think at the core here is the reality that people, uh, as I've done discipleship, as I've read the Bible with people, we get to like Titus uh, or First Timothy, and someone says, I don't, I don't want to be an elder. Why, sh- why should I even care about this stuff about elders? Why do I even care? Well, you need to be able to know what an elder is supposed to look like. You need to, we use the word elder and pastor synonymously, by the way, in our church. You need to, to know those verses because you need to know what my job description is supposed to look like. You need to know how Pastor Joe is supposed to act in the church. And that's your job, right, as the church. Because when you belong to a church, you actually loan your Christian witness to that church. It's not enough to say, yeah, they're all right. You have to be able to say, those are gospel people. That's a gospel church. The members of that church are gospel people. The leaders in that church are gospel people. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean a lot of things. But it means that we're operating in the gospel. And he has this expectation that everybody in the church would know that. Why is that important? Why would I even bring that up? Because the point of whether or not you can recognize someone should be a pastor or an elder in a church is not reserved for seminary profs or just for the other elders. Right? We're supposed to be part of this thing. We're supposed to be part of this team. And we're human beings. And frankly, as you look in Galatians... It's not just that you need to be able to identify. You need to be able to identify when someone's not doing what they're supposed to do, not being that gospel-centered elder. Uh, Galatians, in the book of Galatians, Paul comes after the church and says, hey, there are bad teachers in the church, and y'all need... Biggest problem with the English language is there's no second-person plural. You are, you all, y'all becomes one word, y'all. Y'all have some people that are teaching something other than Jesus' gospel, and y'all need to deal with it. What does that mean? It means you need to know how to fire me. It means you need to, if I am off gospel on a regular basis, to not allow me to preach from this pulpit. That is your job. Because here's the scariest thing about this one, and I know we're over time, but I'm just going to say it anyways. The scariest thing about a bad uh, a preacher who's gone bad is that oftentimes when they're preaching off gospel, who are the first people they take with them? The first people they take with them are the other elders. Those are the guys who are the first guys who are supposed to fire this guy. And your elders are awesome. I, I tell you what, Joe and Mark would fire me. I'm, not, I'm, I'm confident in that, and that's, that makes me feel safe. 
They would get rid of me if I was trying to tell you something other than Jesus saves sinners. And that's all I want you to know. And that's all I want you to teach other people. But if I got off and they got off, you got to get rid of us because we're not anchor church, you're anchor church. I mean, we are anchor church, but just as much as you are. But why is it important that he's saying this is foundational? Because the elders aren't above the newest convert to be able to say, that wasn't the gospel. And it doesn't just mean you don't like my sweaters or you don't like my face. It means that on a consistent, regular basis, I'm off the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm saying something other than Jesus saves sinners. Instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. God will vindicate the righteous. Jesus is returning. This is eschatological stuff, and I'm, eschatology means like, like end of days type stuff, last days, last, last days type stuff. Um, the reason why I think he's, it's interesting that he says this. So the point of our church is not to argue ah-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, pan-mill, like nobody, pan-trib, right? In, in fact, we don't even think as the elders of the church that as an elder you need to have any other position other than Jesus is coming back and he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. Why? Two months ago I was one thing and two months later I'm something else. I still believe the Bible, but I keep reading it differently like, oh, maybe it's that other thing. But I tell you what, we're all going to know when he comes back. That's the one thing we agree on. We all know when he's coming. You, whatever you think it is and whatever I think it is or whatever we think it is together, whatever's going to happen is going to happen when he comes back and it's going to be awesome, Right? So I don't think he's saying don't spend time in eschatological work. Don't spend time considering what it's going to look like when Jesus puts everything back the way it's supposed to be. Do that. Yes, it's good. But at the end of the day, this isn't the place where we're going to like argue or um, be rude to anyone if you're one thing or somebody else is something else because maybe next week you'll be something else. But we hold by this word. We believe this is true, right? It just turns out it's really confusing. All I know is coming back. Lightning, sky, coming back, resurrection, Everything back the way. Every tear, every eye. Good stuff. Now, here's the scariest thing about maturity as we dig into these things. Here's the last part. Um, And this we will do if God permits. So I'm I'm just going to be honest with you here. Here's my stuff, right? A good indicator where I'm at spiritually is how I feel about a verse like that. Because if I'm out of whack, if my heart's out of whack, I read a verse like, if God permits, and I immediately think, oh God, please permit. Please allow me to grow. And I miss the reality, and you might miss the reality, that Jesus is for your sanctification. In fact, Jesus is more for you growing in the reality of Jesus than you are. Praise the Lord. Jesus is more for you than you are for you. That is the reality of the gospel, friends. Jesus is more, he's more for you than you're for you. And so when we come to this, if your heart's out of whack, you oh man, if he permits, oh man, I hope Jesus wants me to love him more. Guess what? That's the spirit at work in your life already. He's already working. If you think, I want to love Jesus more and I want to follow Jesus more, that's already God at work in your life. If he permits you to grow in maturity, he's given you means, he's given you gifts, he's put them in your hands, he's put them in pews next to you. We don't actually have pews, but close enough. 
He's put these people here to help you follow him. He's given you the word. He's given you the spirit. He is so radically for you. He has saved you from yourself, and it is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. He is so radically for you in this act of maturity and coming to strength in the gospel, in the reality of the gospel, that it's hard for us to even actually articulate how for you he actually is. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, period. No qualifiers. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Pretty far. It goes out into space in particular. Right? It's not just around the world. Out into space, east, west. Super geniuses tell me God made it to where it's infinite that way and that way. I don't even know what that means other than my sin is gone because of the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if he is not for your maturity in that, if he is not for you growing up in the gospel in that, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Ask and you will receive. Promise. Luke's gospel ferrets that out a little bit. The Holy Spirit. God's going to send you himself to help you follow him. By the way, you live in America and chances are you can read. You have a leg up on almost every Christian who's ever lived, and many Christians, if not most Christians, who are living right now. Praise the Lord. My little girl, in bed, putting her to bed. Will you read me Genesis? And when I realized in that moment that my three-year-old little girl can't read, which means I'm her access to the word in that moment, three years old, and she's hungry for it, and she wants to hear it. That's a big responsibility, by the way. Jesus said, I have to go so the Holy Spirit can come. Uh, First, John tells us, John says, the reason I write this to you is so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's for you. Philippians Philippians promises as he looks at this church and he sees them following Jesus and he knows they're Christians, he can say with clear conscience, he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord. Take that to the bank. That is our life in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, we want to mature. We want to see you clear. We want to help other people see you clear. We want to know right from wrong, good from bad, and we want it your way, not the world's way, uh, not people's way, but your way, because we know it's not just the, the wiling out, but the, the dead works. It's religion. It's doing right things for parades. God, we want to grow in you. We want to follow you. We want to cling tightly. And we just know, Jesus, that if we touch the hem of your garment, that we will be healed. We have faith that you are at work in our lives. You are at work in this church. You are at work in this city. And we believe, Jesus. We believe you. We believe your cross. We believe your resurrection. We believe your return. We believe that you love us. We believe you're advocating with us at at the Father's side. We believe you've sent us the helper. And we know And we also know that even when we don't feel it, you're still advocating for us. And when our heart's not tuned to the reality that you save us and give us life, 
you've still saved us and given us life. And when our heart's not tuned to the reality of who you are, Jesus, you are still well at work. We love you, Lord, and want to worship you well. Help us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.